the rest of February and, and part of March, we are in a little uh, mini-series, if you will, where we're talking about personal evangelism, sharing the gospel with people who don't know Jesus. And um, if you were here last week, you found out that we are looking at this topic through the lens, really, of one verse in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3.15. Uh, you can go ahead and turn there if you like. And uh, won't be on the screen this morning because we have had a raft of technical issues today involving internets, computer programs, and um, so without seeing visual aids, uh, you can still hopefully uh, pay good attention. I know I become a little bit too dependent sometimes on my eyes, but uh, your eyes can read 1 Peter 3.15, so let's go ahead and turn in your copy of God's Word, and uh, I'll see if my eyes can get their glasses on so I can actually read the words properly. Peter says this to us, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Uh, Last week, uh, you might remember if you were here, TJ and I did a little skit uh, where I tried to lead him to Christ. Um, He didn't come to Christ last week, but he seemed to be on the worship team this morning, so uh, I think something good has happened in the meantime. Uh, but we, we mostly, when we looked at this verse, we didn't look very much at the content of it. We just looked at the context of it. We looked at some of the surrounding verses around 1 Peter 3.15 to find out what the situation was. And we saw the very difficult situation that the believers were in that were receiving this letter from Peter. We also made a big deal out of the fact that, that, that uh, of who the author was. That the person that wrote these words, Simon Peter, was a man who had learned the hard way one night about what it was like to not have an answer and to fail to stand up for Jesus and to share about Jesus when he had a chance, although God gave him many, many more opportunities, of course, later in life, and Peter became an amazing evangelist and witness and leader in the early church. This week, I want to hone in on just the first phrase of this verse, and in the, in the, verse, in the version I read, it said this, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Now, I have to say, as much as I love the English Standard Version, the ESV, which I just read from, I don't like its translation of this particular phrase. And the reason I don't like it is because it uses the word Lord almost as a kind of title for Jesus. It says the Lord Jesus. And we can skip over that really easily because in reality the word Lord is really the most important word of the entire phrase, and so we can't afford to gloss over it as a mere title. It's a very important word. Back in, uh, back in seminary we were learning Greek, and we had a cute little saying we'd always repeat, in New Testament Greek class, and it went something like this. Difference no Greek in makes order word. Or sometimes, word order in Greek no difference makes. Uh, Master Yoda would have gotten an A in in New Testament Greek. Um, But because shifting the words of a Greek phrase around in that language doesn't change the meaning of the phrase, that often frees the authors to move words around in the phrase for other reasons, particularly sometimes to bring them to the front for emphasis. And I believe that what Peter is doing here with the word Lord, because he makes the word Lord the very first word in the verse. And it's very hard for an, for an English translation to pick that up. In fact, it's really impossible. But the New American Standard Version is my favorite here, and in my opinion, the most accurate. It says it this way, but sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Now, that may be a weird phrase for us, 
Because when we hear the word sanctify, which we know means uh, in our context usually to make holy, we think that Jesus sanctifies us, right? Jesus makes us holy. We don't sanctify him. You know, he's already holy. Christ is our sanctifier. We're not his. And so, you know, how could we sanctify Jesus? But in reality, the word sanctify at a more basic level simply means to set something apart to treat it as different from everything around it and to put it in a special place. And when it's used of, of God or of Christ, it means to put him in the place of highest honor. Uh, when, when we are uh, unboxing our Christmas decorations at the beginning of December, getting ready to put everything on the tree, getting the lights out and everything, when I come across the star that goes on top of the tree, what I do is I set it aside. Because the star... Uh, first of all, it's kind of breakable. I don't want it to get broken, but it's very precious and unique, and I don't want to lose the star by getting it mixed up with all the other ornaments, and that's because I have a special place set aside for it. And so I sanctify it. I set it aside. Why? Because it's going on top. And this verse is saying that's pretty much what we need to do with Jesus. We need to recognize his unique position recognize his unique value, and make sure to put him in the proper place in our lives so he doesn't get mixed up with all the other interests and desires and other things that are floating around in our hearts. And that proper place in our lives that Jesus is supposed to be occupying is described by the word Lord. Lord. Now, it's worth noting that for Peter's first century readers, this phrase would have had some very serious implications. Because these Christians were now starting to be singled out for persecution at this time. And the time was coming when some of these people that were receiving this letter were going to have to stand before the Roman authorities and answer a question. And the question went something like this. Who is Lord? Caesar or Jesus? And their answer to that question was going to have a whole lot to do with whether they lived or died. Peter himself when writing these words was just a few years away from facing that very moment before the Emperor Nero. How do you prepare for a moment like that? How do you prepare for that to happen? Or, you know, we probably will never see that happen in our own lives. That's possible. It happens to a few people, even here in America. So we, but we probably won't see that. But how do we prepare for another kind of moment? How do we face the moments in our own lives where we're going to either stand up for Jesus or fail to do so? And some of those moments, as Peter notes in this verse, involve a chance to share the gospel with non-believers. How do we prepare? Well, notice, first of all, that this preparation is something that happens where, according to the verse? In your heart. In your heart, right? So being true to Jesus at a critical moment, whether it's confessing your faith at the point of death or whether it's just sharing your faith with a non-Christian, does not happen by just gathering up your courage in the moment or even by you know, learning some technique for what to say and how to say it. This is a matter of the heart. It's a matter of the heart that must be settled down in the very center of who you are long before the time comes when you face that opportunity. If Jesus is not already on the throne of your life, then you will struggle to convince someone else that he is relevant to them and their problems, because ultimately he's not all that relevant in your own experience. If Jesus does not have first place in your heart, then you will have only minimal compassion for the lost people around you, and you'll be very unlikely to care about them enough to take the risk to share the good news when the time comes. Now, what does it mean to sanctify 
Jesus as Lord in your heart. What does that mean? You know, the Romans, the Romans didn't have much of a religious problem with most of their subjects. The Romans did not really think it was a big deal that most of the people in the Roman Empire had their own religion and their own gods. They pretty much looked the other way and didn't care about that kind of stuff. The only problem started when someone's devotion to their god would supersede their devotion to Caesar and to Rome. So you could worship any god you wanted to, and that was fine, as long as that god could come under the lordship of Caesar and be integrated into the Roman way of doing things when the time came. And as Peter was writing this, the Jews were starting to attract some attention because the the happy little compromises their leadership had made with Rome back in the days of Jesus were starting to come apart. And these Christians, most of whom had come out of Judaism at some point, were even more of a problem because they kept insisting that this carpenter from Galilee, who they said had risen from the dead, had a higher place in their hearts than Caesar. In fact, he had a higher place in their hearts than anybody. And that's actually a pretty good definition of the word Lord, isn't it? That which occupies the highest place in your life. In, in the video lessons that our small group is currently studying, the speaker says it like this. Jesus should be the controlling passion in your life. The controlling passion. There are lots of passions in our lives, right? Lots of desires, lots of drives, lots of priorities, lots of goals, lots of important things. Relationships, our careers, our possessions, our pastimes, our recognition, you know, the people would know who we are, maybe our hobbies, etc., etc. But Jesus, when he comes into our lives, wants to be the controlling passion. It isn't that these things totally go away, but Jesus becomes the passion that is over all of the other ones, organizes them into their proper place, and when the time comes that one of these passions collides with our passion for Jesus, then he wins. But that's not quite all there is to it either. Because this is not just a, a hard matter of the will where you make a decision and it's all, it's all volition. This is also a matter of the heart. Jesus being our Lord also has to do with our emotions, not just with our decision making. And what we learn over time as we follow Jesus is that we actually receive more joy, more satisfaction, more fulfillment from Jesus than from anything else, than from even the good things in life. And when we fail in some way, when we fall into sin in some way, it's always because at that moment, at that moment, something has become more important to us than Jesus. Something has promised us greater joy. Something has promised us greater pleasure. Something has promised us greater satisfaction than we find in Christ. Something has claimed at that moment to be more critical than Him. And we believe that lie and we disobey Christ. And I think you can see how the same thing might happen in the case of personal evangelism, right? When you have a chance to share Jesus with someone, there are a lot of passions and a lot of feelings that are, are swirling around in our hearts at that moment. There's a desire, for instance, for peace and security in my relationships, which may be upended if I get into some kind of uncomfortable discussion with this person. There's the desire to receive praise from other people, or at least to, I care about their good opinion. I want them to like me. And, and we, we don't want to look like an idiot or a pushy person. There's also a desire to be in control, to be in control of every situation, to be in control, reasonably so, of every conversation. And you know what? Gospel conversations can sometimes get out of hand if there's a question that I can't answer or if the person is like hostile or gets kind of prickly with me, and I don't like that. 
And if these desires for this kind of peace and security and control and happiness kind of begin to outweigh the joy of following and obeying Jesus, then I'll probably walk away from that opportunity to tell someone how they can be saved. But if I truly sanctify Jesus as Lord in my heart, then I have a much better chance of sharing him with others. So this idea of doing this, of sanctifying Jesus in our hearts, or even making him our controlling passion, I think we're getting an idea of what that looks like, and maybe you can um, maybe there are some concrete ideas that, that you already have. But for most of us, that probably still sounds a little bit abstract and out there where it's hard to get a handle on. So let me try to give you a couple other slightly more concrete ideas that might help you understand what it means to set Jesus apart as Lord in your heart. This is not all of what it means. There's more to it than this. But here are two big pieces of the puzzle of what it looks like to sanctify the Lord Jesus in your heart. The first one is this. Sanctifying Jesus as Lord in your heart means learning to share the priorities of Jesus. Learning to share the priorities of Jesus, which makes sense. Because the more you love someone, the more what is important to them begins to become important to you. You may have noticed that um, I gave this sermon a kind of tongue-in-cheek title. Actually, you haven't noticed because there's nothing on the screen. But um, the, uh, the title I gave the sermon was Putting Jesus in His Place which, you know, the way we use that expression is maybe a little bit different. So it was, as I said, kind of tongue-in-cheek. But you know what? There was a time that Peter actually tried to do that for real, like the way that we tend to say it now. He tried to put Jesus in his place. The first time Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ, it was the highlight of his life, right? I mean, they were at Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus said to his disciples, who do people say that I am? And there were some answers, and then Peter came out with, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus was like, blessed are you because you just heard that from heaven. And Peter was, you know, in a pretty good place right there. What an incredible confession of Jesus as Lord. But right after that, Peter's priorities and his passions came in conflict with those of Jesus. Because Jesus then started talking about how he was going to have to go to Jerusalem and be put to death. And so Peter took Jesus aside and said, Jesus, dude, stop talking crazy. that's, That's not right. I mean, don't be so defeatist. Don't be so morbid and pessimistic. We're not going to lose. We're going to win, right? This can never happen to you. Got it? You know, brighten up, buttercup. Jesus famously rebuked Peter for this. He called him Satan, as a matter of fact. But then he explains why. And here's what Jesus says. For you have in mind not the things of God, but the things of men. Peter, your your priorities are not my priorities. Your priorities are glory and victory and maybe safety and contentment. My priority is, as I said a little while ago, to establish my church, which means the salvation of people. And in order to do that, I have to go and die. You confess me as Lord, Peter, but if I really am your Lord, then then these priorities you have are going to have to take a back seat to mine. Yes, Peter, you're right. One day I will sit on David's throne, as you say. But right now, my priority is this, to seek and to save that which was lost. We get a beautiful picture of this priority that Jesus has in a story uh, back in the Gospel of John. Uh, When it comes to personal evangelism, you may kind of wonder where to look in, in the New Testament. The best verse is probably the one we're looking at here in First Peter, First Peter 3.15. The best 
uh, passage about personal evangelism is probably found in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 from about verse 14 to verse 21. We'll take a peek at that passage just in a second. But the best example of personal evangelism that you find in the whole New Testament is probably in John chapter 4 where Jesus has a conversation with a lady we usually call the woman at the well. We don't have time to go over this whole encounter right now, but, but Jesus, just long story short, Jesus leads this Samaritan woman to faith in him. And then after this happens, Jesus is still talking to this lady and the disciples whom he had sent into a nearby town to get some food, they come back and they ask Jesus, hey, are you hungry? We got some sandwiches here. You want a sandwich? And Jesus replies, I have food to eat that you don't know about. And the disciples are like, where? You know, they they don't have a clue what he's talking about. The statement is very cryptic to them because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying. They didn't understand his priorities that there was a passion in Jesus' heart that outweighed his appetite for food. And the satisfaction he was experiencing here after having talked to this lady was better than anything he could get from enjoying even the most exquisite meal. I was thinking about, I need to lose like 10 pounds. Maybe I could go on on the evangelism diet, you know. Skip lunch and share Christ. But that would work for me. If you've ever had a really good gospel discussion with an unbeliever or even better yet led that person to Christ, you know, I think, I dare say, you know what Jesus was talking about. I I know that if that happens to me, I'm good. I'm good for quite a while. There is a sense of joy in my heart when that happens that goes very deep. And part of that joy comes from the knowledge that Jesus and I, at that moment, are on the exact same page. My priorities have just lined up with his. And that's the right place for me to be. You know, there are all sorts of important things in life, all sorts of critical things we have to deal with and that we need. Jesus knows about all these things that you're thinking about right now that are so important to you and to me. But Jesus also said one time, seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness, and then all these other things that you're thinking about will get thrown in. That right there is is the consummate statement of Jesus' priorities, right? Seek first his kingdom. And what better way to seek the growth of his kingdom than to invite someone else to be part of it. Part of setting Jesus on the throne of your heart is certainly sharing his priorities. And it will be hard to find an activity closer to Christ's heart than sharing his good news with someone who desperately needs to hear it. All right, just just one more observation this morning. In addition to sharing Jesus' priorities, another thing that happens if he's really Lord in your heart is that you begin to share Jesus' perspective his perspective. And when I say that, in fact, if you want to keep the P's for your outline, you can say point of view too, that also works. But, but his perspective, particularly on people, on people. In other words, if Jesus becomes the Lord of your heart, you start to see people through his eyes. That passage that I, that I alluded to in 2 Corinthians 5 is a passage where Paul tells us that we are ambassadors for Christ and we're making our appeal to other people And these people are outside of the kingdom, but we're inviting them to come in out of the cold. These people are Jesus' enemies, but on the basis of what Christ has done for them on the cross, we are inviting them to come back and become God's friends, to be reconciled to him through Christ. Now, the motivation in our hearts for this is found in verse 14. It's the love of Jesus Christ for sinners. 
which begins not just to be in Jesus' heart, but it begins to seep into our hearts the more we know him. But as that happens, in 1 Corinthians 5.16, Paul says this. He says, we stop seeing people from a worldly point of view, and instead we start seeing them, verse 17, as potential new creations in Christ. Back in that woman at the well story, You've got to wonder what the disciples were thinking and feeling when Jesus sent them into a Samaritan village to go get food. They had to go grocery shopping with these people. And as Jews, they had been taught from the time they were born, basically, to despise Samaritans as apostate half-breeds who were hopelessly compromised both in their ethnic makeup and also in their understanding of who God was. They didn't even associate with them. You can imagine them coming back to that well where they had left Jesus and talking to the Israelites like, man, I'm so glad we don't have to deal with those people anymore. Only to find their, their teacher deep in conversation, not just with a Samaritan, but with a Samaritan woman, which is also kind of a taboo at that time to talk a man to a woman like that. So that had to stretch their worldview a little bit, don't you think? And you know what? This had not been an easy conversation for Jesus either, not at the beginning. It didn't start out easy. You can, I mean, this lady at the very beginning was a little bit prickly, a little bit maybe hostile, a little bit defensive. Her first two questions to Jesus were basically this, why are you talking to me and who do you think you are? But you know what? Jesus was able to look past her sarcasm, past her avoidance, past her defensiveness, and recognize that this was all coming from a place of pain. After all, after five failed relationships with men, it might be pretty natural for her to not give some random guy at a well the benefit of the doubt, especially when he breaks at least two social taboos by even starting in conversation with her. And after the first couple of, of responses, Jesus could very well have said, and maybe I would have said, you know what, you're obviously not really interested in what I have to say, so let's just forget about it. But Jesus doesn't do that. Why not? Because of his perspective because of how he sees her. See, Jesus saw this lady not primarily as a Samaritan or as some kind of bitter defensive woman, but as a human being made in the image of God, a hurting human being who was desperately looking for a God that she could worship and desperately looking for someone to love her and not give up on her. And Jesus knew the answer to her quest. In fact, Jesus knew that he was the answer to her quest. And when he refused to give up on her, she opened up to him about her sin, about her desire to know God, about her longing for a Messiah to come, for her Savior. So let's ask ourselves, do we have that perspective that Jesus does? You know, most, most people that you know have some issues, right? Even the Christians. Maybe especially the Christians have some issues, right? The ones that you know. So it stands to reason that the non-Christians that you know probably have some issues as well, right? There's, there's something about them that you might say is, is kind of an obstacle interpersonally. In some way, most people are one way or another difficult. And these obstacles often give us a ready-made excuse to bypass deep or vulnerable conversations, let alone gospel conversations. I mean, are we, are we able to look past people's defensiveness, past their sarcasm, past maybe their nastiness sometimes, past the awkwardness, past their shyness, past maybe some annoying things that they do, and see a hurting human being who has the potential to be a new creation in Christ? 
In other words, are we beginning to receive from the Holy Spirit the perspective of Jesus, the eyes of Christ? Because part of being prepared to give an answer is having Jesus enthroned in our hearts, and part of having him on the throne of our hearts is learning to see people the way he does, which is different than how we typically look at them. I think maybe both of these aspects of Christ's lordship, his priorities and his perspective, are summed up pretty well in that declaration that I already mentioned that he made back in Luke 19.10. Maybe the closest thing to a mission statement that Jesus ever gave us. He said, the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. Ever lose something? Happens to me all the time. Just ask my wife. But if you're like me, it's different when you lose something important, right? Let's say I lose my wallet, which has happened on multiple occasions, okay? And let's say, often when you lose your wallet, you know it's kind of in the house and it's probably not going to go anywhere. Well, let's say I lose my wallet and I'm not sure where it is. This has happened. It could be in the house. It could be in my office. It could be in my car. It could be on the counter at Taco Bell. Could be on the side of the road somewhere. I don't know where it is, right? I don't know about you, but at a time like that, I'm pretty much driven to distraction. There's very little you can say to take my mind off that lost wallet because of the urgent nature of the problem. Now crank that up a notch and imagine you've lost a child. Some of you know that feeling of panic, right? Tell me, in that instance, what other matter could possibly vie for your attention and pull your mind away from that lost child? I wonder if that's how God feels about lost people. He must. Because why else would he have paid that high a price just to find us? And the more we realize what he's done for us in coming to earth as a human being, dying for us on that cross, the more we will elevate Christ to the throne of our hearts. I think Paul's saying the same thing as Peter in, in 2 Corinthians 5.14 where he defines his controlling passion. I don't know Paul, what Paul says the controlling passion is. He says the love of Christ controls us. Because we reason that if one died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live might not live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. There are a lot of people in this world, some of whom you know, a lot of people who Jesus died for, who don't know it yet. As we sanctify Christ in our hearts, as we put him on the throne of our, our inner being, the love of Christ begins to control us. It becomes the controlling passion. And as his life fills us up, his passions begin to replace our own and our knowledge of his love for us not only makes us want to please him and serve him, but also helps us to share the love that he has for lost people. And if that really happens, if that begins to happen to you, then you are much more likely to be ready at all times to give a defense and to share the reason for the hope that you have, just in case anybody ever asks. And maybe sometimes when they don't ask. Let's pray.